IDC Podcast would like to thank our listeners and supporters at buymeacoffee.com forward slash ID Podcast for making today's show possible. Please be sure to subscribe, rate our show with your podcast provider of choice, and as always, share with others as that's how we grow. Also, be sure to check out episode 137 for the complete Pillars of Intelligent Design audiobook at no cost to our listeners. Welcome to the Intelligent Design Collective. My name is Aleko. For those of you who are new, we here at the IDC podcast believe that the author of life has left his signature woven into the grand design of the material cosmos, and that observable data vindicates belief in the God of the Bible, as you can find evidence of intelligent design everywhere, from the galaxies and star systems in the macrocosm, to the hyper-complexity of life, as well as the incredible curiosities found in the collection of books we know as the Bible. So we're glad that you could join us as we've got a lot of great information coming your way. For today's episode, please be sure to check the description for time codes if you'd like to skip to a specific place. First, we're going to get into the malleability of our reality. The notion that the tangible universe around us is not actually real at all. After that, we're going to discuss the cosmology of the universe in that fake reality, of course and how it fits into the narrative of the scriptures. Then we're going to get into the degradation of society, and perhaps even touch on the effects of community sin as it's seen in scripture. Then we'll be both book club recordings, where the group discusses chapters 1, 2, 3, 5, and 6 of N.T. Wright's The New Testament in Its World. Finally, stick around for the sermon at the end, as I'm sure you'll find it edifying. So this has indeed been a long year for us. The first two months were our final ones living and working in Vietnam. We then spent four, maybe five months in my wife's hometown in England, where I nearly finished my new book on the historical accounts of the Christ. And then just as I began to seek publishers, we were summoned to Duluth, Minnesota, one of the coldest places in the U.S., and a far cry from my hometown of Las Vegas, to begin work for a new company. Interestingly, I have not explored my hometown, Las Vegas, for nearly 12 years now, as we left on our weeks-long adventure in Thailand and India, and eventually wound up working in China. I wound up completing my master's degree in England, and then we moved to Vietnam. All of this starting way back in 2011. So, yeah, I'm very excited for what is to come. We've had three continents in the past year, and I feel energized as ever to tackle the podcast and bring a lot of interesting tidbits your way because I finally feel God allowing settled and we're glad to have, you know, unpacked our bags and we hope not to pick them up in a major way for a while, God allowing. So on this expression of elation, I am excited to say that we now have a new monthly newsletter. You can sign up for this email at our website, cosmology.life. And when you sign up, you can also add yourself to our new prayer list. That's something that we did at the very beginning of the podcast. 
and it's something I would like to do again. You can essentially just put your email address in, your name, just say hi, and we'll send you a monthly newsletter. And if you add yourself to the prayer list, we'll we'll you know throw whatever it is that you would like onto that list and put it out with the newsletter so we can create a massive online prayer group, God allowing. If there's anything that you need Christ to intervene on through prayer, or if you'd just like to join our mailing list, see some of the latest news and really interesting tidbits in the intelligent design world, please head to the website cosmology.life and sign up. We look forward to hearing from you. Finally, some folks have written me regarding the conversation with Father Lyon in episode 150. The general question was, do you not believe in the ability to perform miracles in the name of Christ? Because Father Dustin illustrated a much deeper meaning in the mountain-moving faith quote from the Gospels. My answer is unequivocally, yes, I, I certainly believe in our ability to perform miracles in the name of Christ. If you've listened to any of our podcasts, especially ones where friend of the podcast Michael joins us or throughout any of the book clubs, you'd know that I've been blessed to have witnessed and prayed for many miracles that have come to fruition. These have played a major role in my faith journey. My understanding is that there are many multiple layers to the scriptures as they transcend all understanding because they were inspired by the uncreated creator of the cosmos. Some scriptures can be historical, depending on the book, prophetic. They serve as personal messages to the reader. They have unduplicatable and impossible mathematical qualities, as highlighted by authors this podcast has mentioned in the past. And, as it claims of itself, the Bible teaches and corrects us when needed. I personally believe that each word that Christ spoke that was recorded in the scripture was not only intended for his first century listeners, but for every reader to come, as long as he should intend. So in summary, I stand by both stances, that Christ intended us to do marvelous works in his name by the grace of the Holy Spirit, and that the Gospels act as a supernatural fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. All right, without further delay, let's get into the show. So, Scientific American released an article titled, The Universe is Not Locally Real, and the physics Nobel Prize winners proved it. Elegant experiments with entangled light have laid bare a profound mystery at the heart of reality. What we know is what people have been observing for years, that subatomic particles react to consciousness. We're not sure how or why, but we do know that it is duplicatable in a lab, and it's absolutely fascinating. One of the people who discovered this actually committed suicide over the implications. One of the assumptions based on this, this discovery, this finding, is that the reality that we interface with every day, the, the, everything from the desk that you sit at when you go to work, to your car, to any tangible thing that you know of, is a simple arrangement of subatomic particles that is capable of being redistributed by consciousness. It's subject to consciousness. I'm not saying human consciousness would, would be the thing that can change it, although according to biblical accounts, we have been endowed with that power by the grace of the Spirit, but 
it certainly is subject to a specific consciousness because it seems to act differently around our consciousness, but not, won't necessarily change when we merely will it to change. Although we do know of one who can will things to change because he is the creator of all these things. The article was written by Daniel Garisto of Scientific American. It says, one of the more unsettling scientific discoveries in the past half century is that the universe is not locally real. Real, meaning that objects have definite properties independent of observation. An apple can be read even when no one is looking. Local means objects can only be influenced by their surroundings, and that any influence cannot travel faster than light. Investigations at the frontiers of quantum physics have found that these things cannot both be true. Instead, the evidence shows objects are not influenced solely by their surroundings, and they may also lack definite properties prior to measurement. As Albert Einstein famously bemoaned to a friend, do you really believe the moon is not there when you are not looking at it? The trouble with quantum mechanics was never that it made the wrong predictions. In fact, the theory described the microscopic world splendidly well right from the start, when physicists devised it in the opening decades of the 20th century. What Einstein, Boris Podolsky, and Nathan Rosen took issue with, laid out in their iconic 1935 paper, was the theory's uncomfortable implications for reality. Their analysis, known by their initials EPR, centered on a thought experiment meant to illustrate the absurdity of quantum mechanics, to show how under certain conditions the theory can break, or at least deliver nonsensical results that conflict with everything else we know about reality. A simplified and modernized version of EPR goes something like this. Pairs of particles are sent off in different directions from a common source, targeted for two observers, Alice and Bob, each stationed at opposite ends of the solar system. Quantum mechanics dictates that it is possible to know the spin a quantum property of individual particles prior to measurement. When Alice measures one of her particles, she finds its spin to be either up or down. Her results are random, and yet when she measures up, she instantly knows Bob's corresponding particle must be down. At first glance, this is not so odd. Perhaps the particles are like a pair of socks. If Alice gets the right sock, Bob must have the left, according to this theory. But under quantum mechanics, particles are not like socks, and only when measured do they settle on a spin of up or down. This is EPR's key conundrum. So in essence, it is cognitive of whether or not we are measuring it. We are looking at it. And I got into this briefly in my book with regard to the double slit experiment, which I'll talk about in a moment here. But back to the article. If Alice's particles lack a spin until measurement... How then, when they whiz past Neptune, do they know what Bob's particles will do as they fly out of the solar system in the other direction? Each time Alice measures, she effectively quizzes her particle on what Bob will get if he flips a coin, up or down. The odds of correctly predicting this even 200 times in a row are 1 in 10 to the 60th power, a number greater than all the atoms in the solar system. Yet despite the billions of kilometers that separate the particle pairs, quantum mechanics says Alice's particles keep correctly predicting as though they were telepathically connected to Bob's particles. Although intended to reveal the imperfections of quantum mechanics, 
When real-world versions of the EPR thought experiment are conducted, the results instead reinforce the theory's most mind-boggling tenets. Under quantum mechanics, nature is not locally real. Particles lack properties, such as spin up or spin down, prior to measurement, and seemingly talk to one another no matter what the distance is. Physicists skeptical of quantum mechanics proposed that there were hidden variables, factors that existed in some imperceptible level of reality, beneath a subatomic realm that contained information about a particle's future state. They hoped in hidden variable theories, nature could recover the local realism denied to it by quantum mechanics. The article goes on to discuss some of the complications, historically, of scientists trying to bring this to the surface or to get it into the zeitgeist, rather, because of its disturbing implications, that nature seems to be aware of our cognizance, of our observation. And this is an observation that we can replicate in labs. The famed double-slit experiment originally created by Thomas Young has been utilized many times over the years by various researchers to examine the various peculiar properties of light at the molecular level. However, a watershed discovery was that when single photons were shot at a wall, with two open slits in it, the single photons produced a wave interference pattern on the detector behind the barrier, as though each photon were actually a wave, able to pass through both slits. An even more unusual observation was that when the researchers attempted to fi uh, find the photon as it traveled through both slits, the photon decided to suddenly behave like a particle and choose one slit over the other. In other words, because the experimenters no were noticeably observing it, the photon created a bullet pattern on the detector, the kind made by particles. I'd like to note again that this experiment has been reproduced by many multiple scientists, and the outcome is nearly always the same. As long as nobody is trying to catch the photon going through one slit or the other, they created a wave interference pattern. But when experimenters tried to watch, the photon created a bullet pattern of individual particles. While we observe that all fundamental particles can behave like both waves and particles, it seems that present human consciousness is a factor in their behavior, or at least a consciousness dynamically seeking to quantify the action of the photons in this case. Quantum physics is a peculiar field of study because, observably, humans can change outcomes of certain events just by watching them. More directly, quantum particles act differently when they're being observed and when they're not. Interestingly, a paper from the Royal Society of Chemistry suggests that quantum mechanics performs a pivotal role in biological processes as well, and more significantly, mutations in DNA. The researchers responsible for the paper discovered that atoms found in hydrogen, which provide bonds that hold together two strands of DNA's double helix, can under specific conditions, behave like spread-out waves, which exist in several places simultaneously. This is all thanks to proton tunneling. This can lead to these atoms being latched onto the wrong strand of DNA, causing cancerous and disease-inducing mutations, potentially. The implications of all of this information is simply mind-boggling, and it, it puts on display the interconnectedness of everything in the observable cosmos and shows us that there, there really is no free lunch. Everything is affected by everything. It's, it's the, the butterfly effect exponentially greater. Anything that you do, anything that you think of, anything that you decide to partake in, 
will have an effect on the entire universe in ways that you can't even fathom. And the second key takeaway for me is that this would have to be the result of grand design on a scale that none of us could comprehend. As the universe seems to be malleable, cognizant of us, subject to consciousness in that it can be transformed by it, and also not real. It seems to be more of a, to be glib, a simulation. Interesting indeed. All right, let's get into our cosmology corner. This is cosmological evidence for a creator. So some have charged that creation is not testable or predictive, which is why it cannot be taken seriously in a secular academic community. This is simply a distillation of the truth and highlights that the secular perspective receives more funding and attention on a typical college campus. British physicist Paul Davies wrote that the impression of design is overwhelming, as you see it at every level of the cosmos, and many on both sides of the aisle, including the likes of biologist Richard Dawkins or philosopher David Hume, will acknowledge this. But the real debate is who, or rather what, designed it, as we see people the likes of Hume and Dawkins both suggesting that the appearance of design is a fabulous coincidence. While I get more into the small-scale stuff in my audiobook, which can be found for free on episode 137 of this podcast, today we're going to briefly go over some of the bigger stuff based on the work of Canadian astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross. The Bible, when compared to other holy books, has ten times more on the cosmological origin and structure of the universe than any of the other religious books in the world combined. According to Dr. Ross, there are several fundamentals of biblical cosmology. The first is a singularity beginning, or rather the origin of matter, space, and time. The other holy books refer to God creating within space and time, and not being outside of it. The creation discussed in Genesis suggests all of space and time, based on the Hebrew language, and not merely our planets and solar system. Hebrews 11.3 says that the universe we can detect did not come from something that we can detect. In science, we can detect energy, matter, space, and time. The singularities of gravitational collapse in cosmology, a paper penned by Stephen Hawking and Roger Penrose, concludes, If mass exists in the universe and general relativity accurately depicts the movement of large bodies in the universe, then space and time must have been created by a causal agent who transcends space and time. The Bible stands alone in suggesting that the beginning of the universe was the beginning of space and time itself. Today we have over 30 theorems that confirm this paper which was written by Penrose and Hawking decades ago. Auburn Vorde and Alexander Vilenkin tried to find a loophole to put a rest to the idea of a, quote, causal agent. They did find models of the universe that would not allow for a creator, but their particular models also did not allow for the creation of life. They wound up developing a theorem which suggested that inflationary space-time models are incomplete in both the past and future, which means that any universe which experiences expansion at a steady rate has a causal beginning from a transcendent agent outside of space-time, i.e. God. All reasonable space-time models are subject to the grip of this causal agent. 
This is significant because most of science today is predicated on the belief that natural causes brought everything about. What we see here is incontrovertible evidence for a miracle that many in the materialist community do not want to acknowledge. Because of this, scientists should no longer assume that all causes are natural or are from our material realm. And many have begun to shift toward this thinking in the past decade, I would say. We should be open-minded with regard to the universe. Not only to natural causation, but also to supernatural causation. The second noteworthy biblical cosmology is the scriptures say that the universe continuously expands. As much as the Bible says about the beginning of the universe, it says even more about the expansion of the universe. And for thousands of years, the Bible stood alone in suggesting that we lived in an expanding universe. Today we know that there are specific features that govern the expansion of the universe, namely the mass of the universe and what we now recognize as dark energy. We now know that dark energy likely makes up about three quarters of all of the stuff in the universe. It's also where we find some of the most spectacular evidence for fine-tuning design. For example, if you expand the universe too quickly, gravity will never be able to compress in order to make stars and galaxies. The universe would be forever dispersed as a gas. If the universe expanded too slowly, then gravity would compress all of the gas into black holes and neutron stars. In both cases, there is no possibility for life. This would have to require exquisite fine-tuning of the expansion rates. All physicists, secular or religious, have agreed that fine-tuning is something spectacular to behold. Fine-tuning, according to physicists, exceeds the best examples of human precision design by a factor of 10 to the 98 times. Now, many physicists who embrace the spectacular reality of this will suggest that it might prove a deistic god, but not necessarily a theistic or rather personal god. They suggest that, of course, there is some type of causal agent beyond space-time, but that doesn't mean it's some type of god that would allow an intimate relationship with humanity for them. According to Dr. Ross, one of the best examples of human engineering precision is a gravity wave telescope, which is in Louisiana. There's also one in Washington and one in Italy. The one in Louisiana was designed by MIT and Caltech physicists. Based on calculations of fine-tuning, there is a causal agent who is 10 to the 98th times more precise and capable than the physicists who put together these gravity wave telescopes. In other words, a creator, or rather the creator of our universe, is at the very least 10 trillion 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 times more intelligent and capable than the physicists who created those gravity wave telescopes, and probably that many times more funded than the government who put those telescopes together as well. These conclusions are not nearly being found by Christians, but by many formerly atheists, physicists. A paper recently put together by three physicists titled Disturbing Implications of a Cosmological Constant notes three important facts. One, arranging a universe the way we think it is arranged by dark energy would have required a miracle. Two, an external agent, external to space and time, intervened in cosmic history for reasons of its own. And three, the only reasonable conclusion is that we do not live in a world that is in a universe with a true cosmological constant. 
In other words, they concluded their paper by saying that dark energy must be wrong, because if it's real, you're stuck with an agent who exists beyond space and time and is all-powerful. This paper was published just months before astronomers developed nine independent observations, which concluded that dark energy not only must be real, but is the dominant component of the universe that we can witness. Third, there are pervasive laws of decay. In several different places, the Bible tells us that we live in a universe with constant laws of physics. God says in the scriptures that he has established the fixed laws of heaven and earth. One of those laws is the pervasive law of decay, or rather the second law of thermodynamics. Romans 8 says that the whole of creation groans because it is subject to decay. In lay terms, this suggests that the material universe is at the mercy of entropy, and we have seen nothing to the contrary in science as everything is subject to the second law of thermodynamics. In essence, there is a biblically predicted cooling curve for the universe, or rather heat death. Measurements of the early temperatures of the universe display that this is historically accurate in our cosmos. While these glib and brief examples are a small component of the intelligent design argument, it's worth noting that the more we learn about physics and science in general, the more we understand that the cosmos shows evidence of extreme supernatural design, and it is something that should be brought to the light in all academic institutions. I'll finish with a quote from agnostic theoretical physicist Freeman Dyson. The more I examine the universe, the more evidence I find that in some sense, the universe must have known that we were coming. All right, let's get into our apologetics moment. This one is called the degradation of modern society. So, first off, it should be mentioned that there are many ailments that we find in Western society today which are considered the norm that are absolutely not normal. There are countries that haven't even considered some of these issues, and they're, they're just things that we, we deal with on a daily basis, mostly in English-speaking countries. For instance, in America, allergies, heart problems, liver problems are par for the course, but people are very fine with simply living off of prescription medication to stymie the side effects of these issues. In some respects, you know, clean diet exercise can immediately ward off the effects of some of these. But most people in English-speaking countries don't bat an eyelid when considering things like, you know, allergies to milk and bread and nuts were not even really a thing 20, 30, or 40 years ago. I mean, they existed, but it was very small in society. Because of societal conditioning and perhaps authoritative parroting, most people today believe that gluten and dairy are inherently bad and eat it anyway and suffer the consequences. It brings to mind the scripture where Paul says, all food is useful for eating when consecrated with prayer. So praying over your meal is a good thing as it is an explicit acknowledgement of the Lord's goodness and does provide a spiritual benefit to the consumption of food. But there is a greater reality here, and it is in all likelihood that public health problems, or community health problems rather, such as food allergies, 
have much greater and more spiritual foundations than you might think, especially when the Father has opened all foods to us, and one considers that many of these issues are regionally bound for all intents and purposes. Food allergies and health problems in general have really seen their rise to prominence in the past 10 to 15 years, but you could probably say a few decades. Ironically, they became big in places like Australia first, and then more recently have become more noticeable in the U.S. Well, food allergies, that is. Health problems in Western Western countries, you know, in general, they've been rising, especially the past few decades. Menus are peppered with information about food that wasn't necessarily important years ago. Many airlines have ceased to serve peanuts because merely having the dust in the air could send somebody into anaphylactic shock. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, we find an interesting concept of, quote, spiritual herd immunity, or rather, blessings that fall on a whole group because of the piety of many in the group, or society rather, which seems it could apply to this situation. Deuteronomy, by the way, means second law, because it is the second time the law had been given to the people of Israel. Near the end of the book in chapter 28, starting at verse 1, we learn that if you faithfully obey the Lord our God, being careful to do all of his commandments, the Lord will set you on high above the nations of the earth. Note that it is a conditional promise and not merely carte blanche for the people of Israel. The verse also goes on to say that if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, then all of the curses mentioned in the book will overtake them. And it speaks to Israel as a community. Worth noting is that we as believers have become a sort of spiritual Israel. We have been grafted onto the promise of the Jews, and as secular and debauched as Western society has become, it's not hard to imagine that most people in recent memory have at one point been baptized, or at least, at very least, a part of the Christian community. Now, some will very likely be triggered by the notion of curses falling on a, quote, Christian community, as they have likely been taught that all of the old curses from the law have passed away under Christ. I happily agree with this, and only choose to further embrace the notion that we are passed over by the curse only if we are followers of the Christ, according to the scripture. As institutional Christianity, however, can unfortunately be many things. Now, Deuteronomy notes that if you do not obey the voice of God, then cursed will one be in the city, and cursed will one be in the field. In the chapter, it also says that cursed shall your kneading bowl and basket be. A kneading bowl, of course, is where one needs bread. And this curse means that the very bread that one eats will be, of course, a curse to them as a community. There are also other curses on livestock produce and childbirth, among other things that are very worth mentioning and aimed toward people of the spiritual Israel. At the moment, it's worth noting that there are many shortages of food in the supply chain, and this is becoming a much more prominent global issue. As believers, we should consider the fact that maybe our societal problems across the spectrum, including food allergies, may have something to do with turning away from the Lord as a community. Now, this could definitely come in the form of chasing other gods, and not just in the sense of other religions like Buddhism, Islam, Freemasonry, spiritualism, astrology, Reiki, but also having idols erected in the heart, like sexual immorality. And this is not just pertaining to the 
LGBTQ community as most heterosexuals average around 10 partners before marriage. The numbers out of the gay community are exponentially crazier as large swaths of gay men claim to have had up to 50 to 80 partners a month alone. There are many other idols that people don't even consider. I have been to a number of church services and heard vague conversations from some congregation members, not all, but maybe every now and again, about astrology over the years, as if it were something that is not even taken seriously in that particular community. These problems are apostasy, as you are walking away from your Christ and not trusting in him, as the things we often consider innocuous in the public zeitgeist, or rather the things that the world promotes, have a much greater spiritual reality that many don't consider when they find comfort in institutional Christianity. Note that none of these points are made in condemnation, which, you know, in turn would create guilt, but rather to highlight the fact that Christ's kindness can easily fix any of our ailments if we trust in him. In summary, one way to think of this is that we have a broken spiritual herd immunity because we have walked away from the covering and the protection of our God. Psalm 91 says, He who dwells in the tent of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. When we walk away from that and we are led to or led by our own lusts, we are telling God that we no longer need his protection as he does not endorse sin. Chasing after other gods like the cosmic consciousness or Reiki or many things in pop culture today short circuits our spiritual connection and removes us from the covering. So what happens when the covering is removed? One example from the Heritage Foundation, brilliantly illustrated by Chuck Missler, was that in 1962, prayer was outlawed from public schools, at least in the U.S. And since then, we've seen some major issues. Superficially, authoritative crises, parental authority, marital, political, academic, ecclesiastical authority— All are being challenged and are not taken seriously in the public. There's been an over 600% increase in violent crime, more than 500% increase in illegitimate births, 500% increase in the divorce rate, 400% increase in single-parent homes, over 300% increase in teenage suicides, and an 80% drop in test scores on average. Since 1963, or rather the year after prayer was prohibited in public schools, divorce rates have skyrocketed, family units have been broken up significantly, bear in mind that the single greatest statistic tied to crime and poverty is a single-parent household, unfortunately, a major rise in teenage pregnancies, murder of inconvenient babies, and if you're paying attention, we are at the precipice of welcoming pedophilia into society something that hasn't been prominent since the days of Rome. Unfortunately, in many fallen Christian institutions, many people think it's only about grace, 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 and the, quote, big, huggable grandpa God in the sky. And this false creation of many of these fallen churches would never be upset with them going after other gods or idols. The scripture couldn't counter this belief further. Jesus says to the church of Thyatira in the Revelation that this woman seduces my servants into eating food sacrificed to idols. Note that 
food can have many multiple meanings here, as scripture often has many layers of meaning, as I've discussed earlier, both prophetic, literal, poetic, maybe historical. And one interpretation of food is that it is our spiritual nurturing, as oftentimes when Christ talks about us being fed or even being given drink in the Gospels, he is discussing spiritual knowledge that's infinite and can be given freely to us. So these are the words of the ascended Christ in all of his glory. And so, in essence, he is saying, I have this against you. You are eating food sacrificed to idols. Or in other words, taking wisdom from false idols. He also says something similar to other churches, such as the Church of Pergamum in the book of Revelation. What this means to me is that we as a spiritually connected whole have strayed from our God, and consequently our corruptible flesh can have issues that may only be remedied by the genuine faith in the blood of the Christ and his covering and protection. The scripture is clear that we are to be spiritually communing with our Christ and God, and only him. And doing anything else makes us vulnerable to attacks from entities, as we are no longer under this protection. Welcome to the Intelligent Design Collective Book Club. This is Aleko, and I'm really excited to be getting into the work that we have voted on, which is N.T. Wright's The New Testament in Its World. This book is an amazing volume. It's incredibly large. I think it bests Craig Keener's Miracles. I'm not sure by how many pages, but it is, it is quite big, and it's going to take us a while to get through the chapters that we do select, as I'm not sure we're going to do all of them, but I'm sure this is going to be an endeavor that's going to last us a few months. For those of you who are unaware of who N.T. Wright is, in my own personal opinion, I would say he's the C.S. Lewis of our time. Extremely influential and very knowledgeable when it comes to scripture and things in the periphery of, of the Bible. He is an excellent resource to look to if you want to learn anything biblical. I do have an official background on him given by Zondervan. Uh, he is a professor of New Testament and early Christianity at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland and also a senior research fellow at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford. Uh, he is also the award-winning author of over 80 books and hundreds of articles including After You Believe, Surprised by Hope, Simply Christian, and The Challenge of Jesus. Wright has been called the most prolific biblical scholar in a generation, perhaps the most important apologist for the Christian faith since C.S. Lewis. He is highly regarded in academic and theological circles for his writing, particularly his series Christian Origins and the Question of God, published in over four volumes with two more planned. So I'll be the first to say that uh, worldly credentials aren't the important thing when it comes to biblical understanding, of course, Christ and his Holy Spirit are. That being said, I believe N.T. Wright has been blessed with a gift, and he has tremendous insight when it comes to biblical understanding. I don't agree with everything he says. I, I do believe he is human, and, and like all humans, they you know he's not always speaking out of grace, perhaps you know, maybe out of his own head knowledge from time to time, but a lot of what Wright teaches is very meaty stuff, to use a biblical allusion. So... You know, don't expect to get something a little more superficial in, in any of his works. So today, everyone 
is gone. I'm alone. I'm doing this all by myself. But they have written in their thoughts on the reading. Uh, we covered chapters 1 through 3 of the New Testament and its world. Now, in these chapters, Wright is more just giving a foundation for the work that is to come. Uh, the chapters are as follows. Uh, chapter 1, beginning study of the New Testament. Why the New Testament? What is the New Testament? Keeping history, literature, and theology together. So he gives a rationale for why the New Testament is important in our lives and, and what we should be doing with it. So, you know, something to kind of warm us up. Chapter 2 is the New Testament as history. Reading the New Testament as a historical document. So the focal point of this chapter is the discussion of modernity, postmodernity, and critical realism, and our philosophical outlook with regard to history, and the strong points and weaknesses of all of the perspectives. And I, I thought it was pretty interesting, and I think it's important to get into, especially considering modern educational standards and what they promulgate in terms of, of our perspective of history. So uh, I, I do have some notes on that and I have some notes from other people as well. And the third chapter is the New Testament as literature. Reading the New Testament as a literary artifact and fusing the horizons of author, the text, and the reader. So the author's perspective, what the text says by itself, and maybe the reader's background and what the reader might infuse into what they're seeing and how all three of those can actually be quite important. So before I get into everyone's notes, I've got a couple of quotes that I really enjoyed and I wanted to, to read aloud and then I want to get into you know, some some respective thoughts on, on all of these things. And the first quote is from chapter 2 and it is, quote, Jesus and the apostles constitute the basis for normative Christianity. End quote. So what that means is everything that Jesus is today and everything that he is in the scriptures and everything that the disciples were, at least post-Pentecost, is what we should see as normative Christianity. And every little bell and whistle that Christians have added on in the past 2,000 years in terms of worship practice or um, uh, perspective or you know, alternative views that's extra normative. So I realize there are a, a trillion different routes you can go with this conversation and I'm, I would love to hear the feedback from from the group, but I think that it speaks for itself. That is normative Christianity and it's important that we know that. The next quote I really enjoyed was from chapter 3. Quote, Once upon a time, the quest for meaning was thought to be coterminous with identifying authorial intent. End quote. And this is another one that, that sort of speaks for itself, but uh, there, there was a time where people didn't read their own meaning into the Bible. They didn't read their own culture into the Bible. And I, I suppose, you know, it, Wright does say that that is okay to some extent, that it is meant to be a very personal book for all, but it is not the fulcrum by which we, we make interpretation of the scripture context and authorial intent or what the author intended us to see and hear is very important. But that brings me to another point which is it should be understood especially when approaching something as spiritual as the Bible. Uh, so Wright says texts can carry surplus meaning beyond the author's consciousness. He goes on to say in another part of this chapter, 
quote, this is akin to what is called in patristic exegesis, the census planar, or fuller sense of scripture, by which an inspired text actually says more than the author realized at the time. So I, I don't know that I've met a believer who hasn't either acknowledged or told me at some point that they have read something out of context in the scripture and it spoke to their heart in a way that was very specific with regard to whatever situation they were going through. And what Wright is saying here is that uh, this census planar means that there is surplus meaning that is breathed into the scripture uh, by God's Holy Spirit that gives it life. It makes it a living document so that, you know, the stories have layers beyond their simple meaning. Like, you know, take any story from the Bible. There are, there is, of course, the superficial layer, which is the, you know, the story that's there, which is very important. But there's also something there that will edify a believer when the believer is seeking an answer or looking for, for truth. So there are multiple layers of meaning. Uh, and, and Wright does encourage us to understand that. Finally, at the end of chapter 3, Wright gives a summary for how he thinks that we should you know, hermeneutically interpret the Bible. And I, I tend to agree with it. He says, uh, we propose instead that a, this is a, sorry, this is a quote, we propose instead that a fully orbed hermeneutical strategy will lead us to affirm that all three components are involved in the communicative process. It appears that the author's intent, uh, texts, and reader's understanding, uh, and the meaning that occurs in the fusion of all three is important. Ultimately, meaning is the web of cognitive connections we make with the world behind the text, the world in the text, and the world we inhabit in front of the text. So there are multiple layers of meaning, as there would be for any books that we would read, but the Bible in particular has a life to it and a, a, a quality that is indeed supernatural. And we need to be very aware of that if we get too dogmatic about any one particular stance. So without any further delay, let's get into some of the notes from the book club members. Kirsten writes, favorite part of the book, I enjoyed chapter 3 which describes how the New Testament requires a robust understanding of hermeneutics and the limitations of interpreting or finding meaning in the New Testament purely from approaches of author intent, of the literary text, implied author and implied reader, or of readers. I especially liked ultimate meaning is the web of cognitive connections we make with the world behind the text, the world in the text, and the world we inhabit in front of the text, on page 73. There is a risk of the reader-centered approach which is so appealing in the individual-centered current culture we live in to read the New Testament for what it says to, quote, me now, without wanting to find meaning beyond this. As N.T. Wright writes, we live in a relativistic and pluralistic age, an age which places self-fulfillment above the integration of self with other selves. Kirsten goes on to say, I found it interesting and thought-provoking when he suggests a possible hermeneutical model which is a hermeneutic of love, affirming the reality and otherness of God and neighbor, which he suggests allows us to fuse the horizons of author, text, and reader. End quote from Kirsten. So, yes, um, the 
the idea of fusing these three things was what he called, what N.T. Wright called, the hermeneutic of love, where the reader is taking into consideration every factor of interpretation. The author's intent, um, what the text says, and the, the context of the, the reader's life, you know, what they're reading into the text. The confluence of all three ideas is important, and we should consider that as Christians. Four favorite parts from Brian, he writes, Hi Aleko, hope life is well with you and Melanie. It looks like we may not be able to make it Saturday as we have, well, he has something going on. I won't get into the details, but he writes, talk soon, I hope. I don't know what that means, Brian, but I really hope that you do. I hope that you do join. Brian writes, best bit, in chapter 2 where he describes the analogy of three windows. Modernity, you can see clearly through the window on a Sunday day. Postmodernity, almost impossible to see anything through an opaque window except your own reflection. And critical realism, a tinted window where you can glimpse the truth with difficulty. End quote. So yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I, I enjoyed it, and I thought it was a really interesting perspective. And that analogy helps helped me to understand the ideas of philosophy with regard to interpreting history. Okay, so Hillary wrote with regard to her favorite part of the reading. She said, "In the end, our task is to construct a hypothesis, a story encompassing the beliefs, aims, identity, praxis, and hopes." that constitutes the early church's own story and to show that this hypothesis makes good sense of the evidence and does so in a clear and coherent way with such simplicity as is appropriate for the dense subject matter of actual human life. Hillary also wrote, I also particularly like the part where the author talked about people in different parts of the world interpreting the Bible differently. So Hillary is leaning a little bit more into the last part of the hermeneutical understanding, which was would be the, the reader's interpretation. Um, yeah, I, I think I, I don't believe that an all-knowing myself, and you know, this is not Hillary, of course, but I don't believe that an all-knowing and perfect God wouldn't understand that people would be picking up the Bible from all around the world with very you know, different circumstances as as their you know life foundation. I believe that our our omnipotent God knew that. <laughs> so it, 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 I think that is a part of our interpretation. And that's not to say that we reinterpret the Bible or we, we change anything the Bible says or any of the doctrines that we believe. But of course, some of those factors will play into how somebody sees certain things. And that is important in the end. So Darren writes with regard to his favorite parts, in chapter 1, N.T. Wright lays out a great case for the purpose of the New Testament. It's a story designed to draw us into God's plan, rescue the world from chaos, and launch his new transformative creation. This rescue happened in Jesus and is put into operation through people who are shaped by the biblical vision itself. End quote. Really excellent point, Darren. Yeah, I agree. I wouldn't have anything to add to that. Alright, uh, let me see if I had any notes myself outside of the ones I've already discussed. Um, 
I, I also like the quotes, critical realism is important and attempts to bring sobriety and clarity to the task of understanding Christian history. End quote. And he also, Wright also makes mention of the fact that the Jewish story is being draw, redrawn around Jesus in the Bible, in the New Testament at least. The early church fathers, uh, as noted by Father Dustin, who was a guest on the podcast in the last episode, uh, made mention of the fact that the New Testament specifically, and specifically the Gospels, are a recapitulation of the Old Testament story. So I tend to believe that there are dual purposes myself, as it serves as a recapitulation and an actual legitimate history, though not always chronological, depending on the author of the Gospel. So, yeah, uh, I think Wright makes some excellent points, as did Father Dustin, who was in our last episode. Uh, so, yeah, really, really enjoyable. All right, uh, opinions changed. Kirsten says, the introduction on appreciating the importance of the interrelationship between history, literature, and theology stud- in studying the New Testament. I especially liked, quote, these three elements comprising history, the past, literature, the text, and theology, understanding God and the world, are all sewn together into the fabric of the New Testament. And, quote, a close reading of and thick description of the New Testament will necessarily involve the messy business of history, the hard work of criticism, and the arduous task of theological reflection, end quote. Kirsten goes on to say, I have previously thought about interpretation from historical and theological perspectives, but have not considered the literature perspective. End quote from Kirsten. Yeah, really good points, Kirsten. I think yeah, there's a lot of factors involved there. I also personally believe that we're not too, and I'm sure everyone else believes this, but nobody's here to really defend themselves, um, that we're not to overcomplicate things. I believe that um, um, above all things, the Bible or at least the New Testament, the story of salvation, is very simple. And we don't have to be scholars to understand it. But when we get into things like apologetics, when we get into fierce defense of the scripture, I think it's important to understand some of these things. And I think Kirsten brings up some really, really good points. Uh, Brian uh, wrote, Opinions Changed. He said in chapter 1 where it says that Codex was used for the New Testament books rather than scrolls, making it easier to look up and reference material. Hence, the Christians were educationalists, he says. So, for anyone who's not aware, the Codex is is kind of what we know as as a standard book today in terms of its form. It's not a scroll, like the thing that you roll up and you see in, you know, movies where they carry it around and it has the the two pins in it and you unroll it on a table. The early early scriptures were written in codex or book-like objects and the codexes I believe were brought in just before uh, the time of Christ uh, which I believe is significant historically speaking. Hillary writes with regard to opinions changed these three elements comprising history literature and theology are all sewn together into the fabric of the New Testament yeah I I agree with her Uh, Darren writes with regard to opinions changed In chapter 3, N.T. Wright claims the chief task from the critical realist perspective of the New Testament is to construct a hypothesis which explains the story of the first Christians within the storied world of the Jews, Greeks, and Romans. Darren goes on to say, I find the need for a story aspect to be a new view for me, and having thought about it, 
a bit, it's probably one that is significantly, significantly underutilized by most, most church pastors today. Um, I, you know, I, I couldn't speak to that. I, you know, I haven't been to a lot of a lot of churches and, and seen a lot of different views, but uh, I think it's interesting that he brings that up, and I would like to, to learn more about that when I actually do see him in the next book club session. Okay, uh, finally, questions or objections for the author uh, coming from Kirsten. I am still pondering the conclusion and summary of the third chapter. Quote, in sum, this hermeneutic of love is Lectio Catholica Semper Reformanda, a reading of and for and in the whole church, but a reading which is always in need of revising and reforming, even as such readings themselves should revise and reform the church. Such a reading seeks to be faithful to what is received, while always open to the possibility of challenge and correction. And that is the end of the quote from Kirsten. Yeah, I think she she brings up an excellent point. What is what is the end game here, in my perspective, uh, from from right? Um, I don't think he's opening the door to progressive Christianity, uh, the fallacy of progressive Christianity, I should say. But um, I, I do wonder where he would he would be going with that. So I'm looking forward to hearing more uh, of Kirsten's perspective on that when we meet up again. So it looks like that concludes all of the questions or objections from everyone who wrote in. In terms of next reading, I think that we're going to skip chapter 4, at least make it optional. I, I'm going to read chapter 4, but because of how much we have to cover, uh, I'm just going to make it an optional reading. And we're just going to do chapter 5 and chapter 6. So chapter 5 is the history of the Jews between the Persian and Roman empires. And chapter 6 is the Jewish context of Jesus and the early church. Thanks so much for joining us and God bless. Alright, welcome to the Intelligent Design Collective Book Club. This is Aleko and I am joined by my friends. But before they introduce themselves, uh, Darren, would you be keen to do the opening prayer? Sure. Heavenly Father, pray for a blessing on our meeting and our discussion. Uh, we pray that it would be edifying to us and also to people um, who listen to this later. And pray for humility in our discussion and, um, and also an open mind. Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Um, yeah, so who's with us today? So I've got Darren, and I'm in British Columbia. I'm Haley, and I'm in Minnesota. All right, and this is Aleko, and I'm in Minnesota as well. We're all experiencing a very similar climate right now, aren't we? Yeah. I would think so, yeah, except it's probably a lot drier here than it is by you. Okay, all right. Who do you think uh, will have the more severe winter, Darren and Haley? You you both would probably know a little better than I would. Definitely us, Aleko. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, without a doubt, it will be you. Will it? Really? Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, flip. Okay. Um, so, it feels good on one hand to best Darren. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, oh, man, it's going to be like 2020 all over again. I, uh, several people have said just find a puzzle to do, 
during January and stay indoors and do that. Uh, so, yeah. <clears throat> but I know Darren has experienced way colder weather further north, right? It was ridiculous yeah. up in... Wh wh where was it exactly? Uh, outside of Edmonton, which I don't know if it would be that much colder than the winters you're, you're in for. Oh. So, yeah. Goodness I, gracious. I think, it'd be, I think it would be in the same ballpark, except, again, the... In Edmonton, it's much drier than it would be on the shores of Lake Superior, where you're at. Oh, man. Okay. All right. Yikes. But it's okay. Once it gets below, like, minus 20 or so, it kind of takes the humidity out of the air, so it should be all right. Somebody told me that, and that was the most shocking fact I've learned coming to Duluth, Minnesota, that it can be too cold to snow. Yeah. Yes. And that's what really gets me is when you step outside and you can feel like all of your skin cracking because it's so dry and cold. Oh, so I really like, I don't know about Duluth, but in the cities there's this place that's like a public greenhouse and I go there a lot in the winter because it's like the air is so moist and the plants and it's, it's very good for your health in the winter. That sounds good. I've actually seen a, a couple of yeah. greenhouses yeah. around town. I know that there's a, a Catholic monastery called... Yeah, I mean... Oh, sorry, Darren, please go on. Darren's got the uh, developing country connection in Canada, so he's, <laughs> he's, he's getting the audio a little bit late. I'm sorry, I'm like in a corner here so that I didn't, don't wake you. <laughs> Lost you a little bit there, man. Okay. Anyways. <laughs> yeah, anyways, I was going to say that, um, yeah, it, it's, it's also like the, when it's really cold that you take when you open up the door and it like burns your insides. Yeah, Haley knows what I'm talking about. You'll find out later. Oh, yeah. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Oh, man. Okay. It's not that. <laughs> um, Alright, so today we're talking about the New Testament and its world, chapters 5 and 6. We kind of skipped over 4, left it for optional reading because these are very heavy chapters and 4 was another establishing chapter. Um, but I know some people read it. I, I, did not, I did not read that one. I just went to 5 and 6, which gets into the... Darren, just out of curiosity, is there some noise going on in the background? Yeah, it's called a two-year-old waking up. Ah, so okay, I'm, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to be moving. Okay, okay. All right, just um, I, I know it's probably small on that end, but. Okay, okay, all right. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of the weird thing, Haley, about the the book club recordings is. Uh, really innocuous things become just mountains, you know, little little molehills are just, you know, the rustling of a bag just is so loud on the audio or, you know, water or whatever. It's it's, it's strange the way it works. All right, so... Yeah, I to my audio from the previous one and it was so bad. Yeah, it's it's a I'm, a... I'm still very much an amateur with regard to editing it and all that stuff, but I noticed that 
it, it is it's a finicky thing it's very delicate the way it is um, so all right um, yeah so welcome well I already did that part didn't I let me just um, let me just write a little note okay uh, so yeah today we're talking about the New Testament in its world chapters five and six we vaguely glossed over four left it for optional reading it was another establishing chapter and five and six is where we start to get into the meat of it all. Uh, a lot of history and context, uh, which provides sort of a scaffolding for the story of the Gospels. And it's actually quite quite fascinating because you can get into the mindset of, of early Christians, which is the intention of the author. Uh, and I'm, so I'm really keen to, to hear what everyone thought about this week's reading. And, and we'll start with Darren. Did you have a favorite part? Yeah, so my favorite part of the reading, which is also uh, was very new to me, um, was the section about, about the uh, Maccabean revolt. And I did, I had no idea how important this revolt was in the um, kind of like the Jewish cultural understanding. And uh, N.T. Wright compares the Maccabean revolt to the exodus from Egypt. So it's like that important to the Jewish people and they created uh, special holidays around it. And um, it was it was very defining for them. And, and basically um, they, so they were under kind of the rule of the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and then had this revolt and actually were able to establish in, in a completely independent kingdom for like 130 years, 140 years, something in that range. And um, I, I'm sure that um, Maccabees was probably compared to a type of messiah since he fit the bill of like the the king and um and he was also quite religious, so it's kind of like this religious king who uh, saved Israel from their oppressors. And then just, yeah, a hundred, or I don't know, less than a hundred years later, I suppose, it was all came to an end when the Romans asserted their rule and put in place their own uh, kings and kind of a puppet king, really, through the Hasmoneans. So it was... Um, that section was really interesting to me, and uh, and I think it probably had some effects on how the Jewish people would have perceived Jesus, and also uh, what they were looking for. Like I, I can only imagine that they were looking for another Maccabeus to deliver them from the Romans and restart their kingdom and reconsecrate their temple, like Judas Maccabeus Maccabees did, and. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it just a really interesting section, and, and it helped me uh, shape more of my understanding of what the Jewish, what the state of the Jewish um, people, like politically and also spiritually, in terms of the temple and all of that, was at the at the time of Christ. A really interesting point. Now, with regard to the Maccabean revolt, was that? Uh, did that deal with Antiochus Epiphanes? Am, am I correct there? Sorry, I uh, muted myself. No, there. no worries. Um, yeah, so the, the uh, 
Antiochus was on the other side yeah. of yeah. the, uh, with the, I think it's called the Seleucid Empire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he was on the other side of that. Um, there were, there were several people that were mentioned actually in that, um, in that section as, as being sort of on, on the opposing side of the, the Jewish leaders under the Maccabees. I don't recall if Wright said this, but um, Antiochus Epiphanes is the one who performed the Abomination of Desolation, which was defiling the, the inside of the temple. And what many eschatology buffs think was a prototype for what the Antichrist will do. Um, some people think it's, you know, it's going to happen again. Well, the scripture actually says it will happen again, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of debate as to whether or not that's literal or or more of a spiritual manifestation. I tend to believe spiritual uh, for a lot of reasons, and obviously it's a huge, huge tangent to go down. But um, yeah, really, really interesting time. And, and that's what led to Hanukkah, if, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So Hanukkah was uh, established, which is like a, a major Jewish holiday as part of that revolt and the re-cleansing of the temple and the honor of Jerusalem and all of that. And um, wasn't there also a Roman, uh, was it Caligula maybe, there was a, a Roman emperor who also defiled the temple and, um, and so basically marched in with, into the Holy of Holies with his men. I, I can't remember, it, it may not have been the emperor, it could have been the, the general that was in charge of the campaign, but yeah, that, that happened again. So yeah, it was, uh, it was quite a, a crazy period of time there. Yeah, I think the second occurrence might have been Titus Vespasian, who was the one responsible for destroying Jerusalem. Um, but I could be mistaken there. I don't know if I... Was Caligula the one that put his statue in the temple? He tried to erect his own statues? Yeah, I think that sounds right. He went into the temple and was going to put his statue in the... Um, I think it was the temple courtyard, so not inside the temple itself, but in the temple courtyard. And then he ended up dying or was uh, murdered or something like that um, before it all came to fruition. So, um, yeah, I'm sure the uh, Jewish religious leaders had some things to say about that. Yeah, really interesting. Really interesting. All right, so we've got emails from Brian and Hillary. As I mentioned earlier this morning to, to Darren and Haley, Hillary sent me a message with a photo of a farm animal. I'm gonna look at it again, see if I can figure out what it is. Uh, let's have a look. I can't, I can't tell if that's a, I think it's a sheep. The reason, what's throwing me is it's got a, a black and white face, but it looks like a sheep. It's got the proportions of a sheep. Yeah, that sounds about right, given where they live. Okay. And then I responded, they look delicious. Because there's two of them, so... Okay, so... (laughs) Hillary writes... Let's see, let me open up my notes here. Uh, Favorite part of the reading? Alright, she writes... uh, Favorite part? Discerning the theological claims of the text frequently follows from reconstructing the social context behind the text. It is much easier to understand if you can work out where the writer is, quote, coming from. So I'm guessing that is from chapter four, uh, where Wright really gets into good 
good practice with regard to discernment. Basically, Hillary was discussing chapter four, which we kind of left just open ended. I don't. I did either of you read chapter four? Uh, have any thoughts on it? Mm-hmm. What yeah, did? I did as well. So okay. right after that part that she's talking about, there's this great quote about like a saying about um, theology and history go together like coffee grounds and hot water. You know, you don't just like bite the coffee grounds and sip the hot water and you're like, wow, that's a good cup of coffee. They need to be like cooked together. That's a great quote. I really like that. Yeah, there was a lot of um, interesting information in that chapter, but I I would agree that it's kind of laying groundwork and context for how to, uh, I guess, like how to understand the New Testament or really it it can be applicable to any kind of history, uh, any kind of historical reading. But um, yeah. He's, he's laying the groundwork there, and I think he does a really good job, and it's worth reading just to, uh, for our audience, anyways, just to kind of understand uh, or prepare your mindset for reading the New Testament. So, yeah, quite enjoyable. I might have to backtrack then and, and go over it. All right, uh, Brian writes with regard to favorite part. Uh, he says, the fact that the New Testament was written for us but not to us means that we must take seriously its social, religious, and historical context. So, yeah. Um, I think he makes a great point. That's obviously from chapter four as well. Uh, let's see. Haley, did you have a favorite part of the reading? I liked reading about the, um, I think it's pronounced Essenes. Okay. Yeah, this quasi-nomadic group, they apparently lived in a city center and also remotely by the <clears throat> the Dead Sea. And they mentioned John the Baptist as maybe being a member of that group. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I had read about that before and I thought it was very interesting. These were, um, obsessive about like ritual washing and cleansing and um more so than just like your average jew who uh, i believe it was is it the mikvar aleko is that what it's called the baths the public baths oh i don't know yeah mikvar or mikvah i don't know something like that but anyways yeah. the um the essenes kind of took that to the next level and um there's a lot of um like the idea of baptism as we understand it in like uh, after the the baptism of Christ and um, and in the Christian context probably came in from the ritual cleansings that were done by the Jews in the Old Testament and in the uh, Levitical laws and that sort of thing and um, yeah John the Baptist to to preach like repent and be baptized was actually a very very much in the same line as what the Essenes were were teaching and doing but they kept it quite closed with the people that were in their in their uh, sect I guess you would call it or in their particular flavor of Judaism so John the baptism really opened that up to the Jewish people as a whole and then of course that morphed into the the one time 
baptism for the uh, forgiveness of sins that we have today. So yeah, it's it very cool. Um, all right. Uh, yeah, I had I, I particularly enjoyed uh, both chapters. I thought they were really good. I thought uh, th- to me the most interesting discussion was the Jewish sects uh, sects um, that was regarding four different offshoots of Judaism: the Zealots, Pharisees, the Dualists, and the Sadducees. And what that made me think of a bit was modern. Christianity in terms of denominations and I, I've often felt and this is just a personal opinion that and I, I know I've said this before that there's really a, a sharp dichotomy in in Christianity there's the genuine followers of Christ and then there's the institutional followers and the institutional followers is you know some type of mingling of personal philosophy with with you know Christianity but you know it is not necessarily all the way there and you know, I, I saw a lot of similarities. You know, you had the, the zealots, who were you know basically the we live by the Bible, but we sharpen our sword types. They there were the the Pharisees, who were kind of the sanctimonious you know types who you know went out and sort of preaching and um, were kind of community activists according to right. The dualists were recluses, I suppose you could call them. They just kind of separated themselves from the world, and then. Uh, the Sadducees were the ones who sort of kowtowed to the government in order to keep things going, and you know you could do use your own imagination to kind of fill in the gaps on what what Christian denominations or institutional denominations could fall into any of those categories. But I think it's very interesting how uh, the human mind works, you know, with regard to compartmentalizing, uh, you know, their own or not maybe not compartmentalizing but more amalgamating their own beliefs with with um, the truths of Christianity and how it kind of sends things a little astray. Just a personal opinion, but I thought it was a really interesting part of the book. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it as well. I, I thought it was pretty cool to learn about the different, um, different sects, and I actually kind of came away that... Um, the way that N.T. Wright lays it out is, I, I would say he's a bit forgiving to the Pharisees. So when we read about the Pharisees in the Bible, we kind of read about these um, people who were, uh, you know, very, very sanctimonious and were not um, sin, kind of not sincere in their beliefs and were always challenging Jesus over little picky things in laws and sometimes not even like the real law but rather the set of codes that they created to um, uh, distance themselves from breaking the law even more and uh, N.T. Wright kind of compares them or would describe them I would say a little bit different he's um, he's saying like these these were sincere Jewish believers who were trying to ultimately bring about a cleansed Jewish kingdom or a cleansed Jewish state, let's say, through uh, um, very, very strict observance of all the Jewish practices for everything from sacrifices to washes to prayers and would kind of put social pressure on regular Jews. and. To, to kind of adopt their um, their way of life, but they also seem to be quite respected by a lot of your regular Jews, which is um, not 
not really how they're portrayed in the Bible, I would say. They, they uh, in the Bible, they're portrayed as being a little bit, a little bit nasty and, uh, and that they, you know, pretend to hold the law, but they actually would, would not hold the law. And, and yeah, and anti Wright would say that they, there were certainly things that they would like focus on very little things and miss the bigger pictures they would miss the let's say like the love of god and focus on you know um going to the the temple and and public praying and making a bit of a spectacle of it so yeah i, I thought that was that was pretty cool and opened my eyes a little bit to who they were yeah really good points i would have nothing to add to it but yeah really interesting all right, opinions changed. Darren, any opinions changed? Yeah, so kind of next to my comment about the Pharisees is the um, some of the stuff that he writes about the Sadducees. So the Sadducees were kind of famous. Uh, so Jesus challenged them on not believing in the doctrine of the resurrection and specifically the resurrection of the dead. Um, however, in, yeah, I guess N.T. Wright basically would say that they, the Sadducees could have adopted that belief uh, partly because they, they had experienced this kind of remake of Israel after Babylon and so this kind of resurrected Israel and that failed so the failure of the resurrected Israel or the, the a kind of holy Jewish state if you will um, morphed into them denying the resurrection altogether and then also turned the Sadducees into a, almost like a kind of political class where they were somewhat corrupted by the um, by their political intentions of holding power and he makes the Sadducees sound very very close to the the high priests of that time uh, so it's like very controlled in in a few ruling or elite families and those elite families serve religious functions but at the same time they uh, were politically corrupted and had to kind of weave this fine line, if you will, between what the, the Roman rulers and the uh, the Hasmonean kings wanted done, and at the same time, try not to upset the general population of Jewish people too much because they, they wanted to hold on to the, the power of the temple and, and, um, and keep that daily influence that in the regular Jewish person's lives that uh, comes along with holding the temple power. All right, uh, let's see. Opinions change. Ah, so we're going to go with Hillary. Um, I enjoyed, she says, I enjoyed the historical description of the four Herods and the fact that Herod Antipas built a new Galilean capital named Tiberius on the shore of Lake Galilee, as mentioned in John 6. Yeah, yeah I think uh, interesting point. I don't know if anyone has anything to add to it. Alright. Uh, they shook their heads, no. We need we need some type of narrator who's going to just be there to describe what's happening in the video. Um, 
Let's see. Brian writes, let's see. After AD 70, at uh, Jane's Synod, some say that Christians were banned from synagogue, although this is disputed. In fact, the early Christians were more against paganism than against Jews. Okay, yeah. I, good point. I have nothing to add to it. Yeah, I think the my one comment about that is that a lot of Christians um, today tend to forget that Jesus was a Jew and that a lot of the early Christians would have seen themselves as something of an extension of the Jewish religion. So it would make a whole lot of sense for Jews to be using the synagogue and to or sorry Christians to be using the synagogue and to associate with Jews and that Jews would even like of course not if you were a Pharisaic Jew but if you were just a um, a regular Jew that you would see Christians as being not too far off from from what you believe and maybe something more suited for for export if you will. Oh, great point. Really good point. Uh, Haley, did you have any opinions changed? Yeah, mine was just that same realization that early Christians attended the synagogue. But when I thought about it, it makes perfect sense. It reminds me of a line from one of the early chapters. It was either one or two where uh, Wright says that, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. I don't remember exactly the, the, the quote, but it was that early Christians and the followers of Christ should be considered the baseline for, for Christianity as we know it, or their actions, what they did. I, I don't remember the quote exactly. I've got the book right here in front of me. Maybe I highlighted it. But more or less, if we wanted you know, some type of baseline, some type of, you know, if we were looking to something as an archetype, then, oh, here we go. Jesus and the Apostles constitute the basis for normative Christianity. So, in anything else is something else, I suppose. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean it's not inspired, but it's that's that's the norm right there. Yeah, I, I think I would push back a little bit on that because when you see how Jesus and his um, disciples behaved, they were they were preaching inside the context of the the Jewish state and the Jewish religion. Whereas, uh, if you look at Paul's writings in particular to the different churches, mostly in modern day Turkey, uh, which was a very different context because most of the cities that he was writing to were kind of Greek dominated cities in modern Turkey. So sure. the, um, the context or like the life that the average Christian would have and would be, um, I don't know, how would you say it? The, the social environment that they're in is very different from the social environment that Jesus and his followers were in. And the instruction that Paul gives is very different in some ways from the uh, instructions that um, Jesus gives. So I think that, I don't know, when, when I read the both, both of those kind of letters and instruction, I would say that the biggest takeaway is that um, there are certain core elements of the Christian faith that that you see 
in Jesus' teaching and in Paul's letter writing, but then there are other things that are quite contextual, and um, and those things maybe have we have to fit in our modern day culture and our cultural challenges as well. Yeah, I mean that's a great point. I think Paul. There's also the conversation in in the Acts where Paul's you know they're basically discussing what new Gentile converts should be doing. And the, the, the distillation of that is just don't eat things mingled with blood. And what was the other one? I can't recall, but it was, you know, they, they didn't want to subject the Gentile converts to the, to the law or to all of their practices because they're like, where did that get us, really? So, yeah, you, you make a really good point. And, uh, yeah, but perhaps Paul fits into the context of the statement by right because it just says the followers of Christ you know, and, and he did he did lay out some pretty good ground rules, I suppose. Um, but you, you, yeah, interesting point, definitely, Darren. Actually, yeah, I'm just thinking back as you mentioned that, and I believe that he names Paul as one of Jesus' early apostles. So um, I, I think he would fit Paul into kind of lump Paul and his teachings together with the uh, the twelve, or I guess the eleven that um, remained with Jesus and spread his word after Jesus' death as well. So, yeah, I, I, I guess uh, I probably should have thought about it a little bit better before making my prior comment. <laughs> no, no, but yeah, you, you raise an interesting point. Like, you know, even within the context of the Bible, there's no... There's a baseline, but there's no... Um, perhaps uniform way to worship God, uh, which... which it makes it, it makes a very dynamic case for Christianity, perhaps. I thought it was really interesting when he mentioned that to an outsider, early Christians would seem like they were part of some academic institution. You guys remember that? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, with uh, with all the reading and studying of the scriptures and all of that stuff. Yeah, that's that's quite interesting. Yeah, really good point. You know, I, I've lost my my place. Have we done Haley's opinion changed yet? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. So perhaps uh, questions or objections, Darren? Yeah, none really. Um, I think this again is a lot of these chapters here. Um, yeah, it's a lot of background, I guess, on the what happened in the Jewish. Um, system like their sort of history and at least uh, lays that groundwork and I don't, I don't have anything to object because it's all quite new to me all right and let's see it looks like Hillary has no objections none from Brian uh, Haley any objections or questions I was just confused by something when in the section where they're talking about like the languages that Jesus probably spoke and they mentioned Greek and they mentioned because, well, I mean, it was common to where he lived, but also so he could speak to this one woman in the Bible and then also so he could speak to Pontius Pilate. And I was just like, wait, didn't, wouldn't he speak Latin? No. Um, yeah, so prior to that comment there, I don't even, I think it may have been in chapter 
four or five, I can't remember exactly, but he talks about how pervasive the Greek language was even in the Roman Empire and how basically the eastern half of the Roman Empire remained Greek the entire time, whereas the western half adopted Latin as kind of the, uh, the main language. So it's almost certain that Pontius Pilate and um, Herod and all of the, the different rulers in that area would be conversing in Greek and conduct basically all of their business in Greek. Yeah, I think it was... Oh, sorry, go on, Haley. That makes sense. I mean, I would think they definitely knew Latin since like, they wrote in Latin. They wrote some things in Latin. What? I mean, could Jesus have known Latin or... Was Latin one of the languages uh, yeah. on the the sign above Christ on his cross? It was Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. I wonder if Latin was there. Yeah. That's a great question. I don't know. Because obviously, <laughs> study for after. Yeah, because obviously uh, Herod did that to, or sorry, uh, not Herod. Pilate did that to take off the Jews, um, but. I, I know that he, he was just making it clear that he was mocking the Jews by, by putting that there, but um, it's also a testimony to how intelligent the culture was you know, comparatively. And, and I, I, you know, a lot of countries today maintain that practice, especially in Europe, where, you know, English may be the lingua franca, but, you know, you go to you know, throw a dart at a, a map of Europe and probably that country speaks any variation of German, French, possibly Italian, you know, they, it, as a means of survival, if, if they don't, you know, hopping a border means it's going to be pretty tough for them, so they know how to, and, and probably a lot of other countries can do that as well. Um, it's really, really interesting. Okay, quick Google search confirms that it is four languages, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Latin. Really interesting, yeah. So they yeah, so that makes sense. That thanks for clarifying, Darren. That in that area, the common language amongst the people was probably Greek. Yeah, uh, I think that he was saying like the language of the commoners would actually have been Aramaic, or like a type of Proto-Syriac, and that the language of Ed more of the administration and commerce and that sort of thing would have been in Greek and then probably the language of government in terms of like say uh, a person like Pontius Pilate I'll make a note Darren has dropped off let's see where is that 46 minutes Got any plans today, Haley? Communicating with Rome would have been done in Latin or maybe Latin and Greek, who knows, but yeah. Darren, we lost you for about 30 seconds there. Am I still, am I back or not? Yeah, um, you're back, yeah, would you mind, could you say that again? I didn't quite hear everything you had to say. Yeah, so uh, with N.T. Wright, as he describes it, he said that the language of the commoners was 
Aramaic or some kind of Proto-Syriac. So that would have been the language that um, Jesus would have been generally speaking with the population, particularly the people that he was interacting with, because for the most part, he was interacting with, say, like the middle to lower classes of people in, um, in Israel. And then Greek would have been more of the language of commerce, like cross-border commerce, and then um, and and local administration. And then, if someone like Pilate or Herod or one of the other, um, what's it they call it, the prefectorates or whatever, the the people that were the governors, I suppose, they when they were communicating with Rome, it's probably uh, that likely that they would have been communicating in either Latin or maybe Latin and Greek. So, yeah, it's um, there's a lot of different languages flying around, that's for sure. So, uh, I remember once reading that, and I know I'm going to destroy this, but um, Pilate was so intelligent, he was so well-educated when he wrote the, the titlam above Christ, the sign above his head that said, uh, you know, King of the Jews. Something about the way he wrote it created an acrostic in multiple languages, which also spelled out the unpronounceable name of God, Yathe Vafe, which was uh, Yehovah. Um, I don't know how to explain that so that it makes sense, <laughs> because it doesn't quite make sense to me. I'm not sure. I can't picture it in my head or how it would have looked. But uh, you know, obviously, you know, anyone who could speak four languages is pretty pretty intelligent and there was this other thing uh, I was I was talking to that, that Greek Orthodox priest a few weeks ago he's helping with the Greek study and this came up uh, this is something I learned years ago but obviously the the Romans kind of hero worshipped the Greeks Greeks for a while they, they, they saw them as sort of um, scholars and they were you know a lot of Roman culture is, is um, um, an amplification of Greek culture but um, the actual word for barbarian that we have today comes from the Greek varvaros, which means anyone who doesn't speak Greek. So, um, you know, they were, n nobody wanted to be lumped in with the barbarians, like with the, the Germans to the north, or obviously they weren't Germans at the time, but, uh, uh, you know, any of the outside tribes. So speaking Greek was a matter of, I guess, societal placement. I don't know what you would call that. Almost like a caste system, perhaps. I'm getting done. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it would be somewhat comparable to, um, like, we lived in Vietnam, and if you're someone who only speaks Vietnamese, you're kind of on one level, but if you're someone who speaks Vietnamese and English, then it immediately bumps you up into a bit of a different social circle, and um, the same could be said for uh, people that would speak, say, uh, Mandarin very well or Japanese very well. It just opens up different economic opportunities for them that uh, just speaking Vietnamese would, would not offer. And then it gets even worse in Vietnam if you're like going to the, um, the hill regions because there are people there who speak a local language like maybe Hmong or Thai and they could have very limited knowledge of Vietnamese so then their their circle like you can almost think of that as like maybe a type of Aramaic if you will because their ability to conduct commerce and all of that stuff is quite limited just because of their their language restraints yeah, really good points really good points 
Um, so I want to thank Darren for staying 17 minutes beyond when he said he would leave. Uh, it was good talking to you, Darren. We, we teased him a little bit too much about the cacophony coming from his end of the microphone. But uh, we, we do love to have him. And Haley, thank you so much for joining us. Um, does anyone have any closing thoughts on this particular reading? I don't on this reading, but I do need to go right now. So sure, sure. thank you. And um, we'll see you all, not next week, but uh, hopefully the following. <laughs> Take care, man. Okay, bless you all. Bye-bye. God bless. And all right, I might just do a closing prayer really quickly. Um, thank you, Heavenly Father, for allowing us all to come together and discuss this brilliant book, which you allowing would give us the ability to create an apologetic defense of the scripture and of our faith and of our belief. We ask that you bless our week, you bless all of our weeks, our week, week ahead, sorry, and um, that uh, you would be with us and that you protect us and keep us safe as well as all of our listeners. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen. Right when I begin back in the 17th century, when there was an emperor in Prussia by the name of Frederick V, and he had a philosopher at court with whom he had many discussions. And one day, Frederick V of Prussia said to Heidegger the philosopher, give me one proof of the existence of God. And Heidegger said, your majesty, the Jews. And considering that was long before there was any sign of any return to this land, and when they were scattered among the nations, and in many cases looked as if they would die out, it was quite an amazing answer. But the fact is that the existence of the Jews is a proof of the existence of their God. It is as simple as that. The Jew has been called the eternal Jew, but that's only because his God is an eternal God. There should never have been a nation of Israel. Humanly speaking, their history is impossible. They began with an old man of 90. That old man left a comfortable brick house and lived in a tent for the rest of his life. I don't know many old age pensioners who would do that. And he set off with a wife who'd been totally unable to produce any children for him. And so it looked as if the family line would come to a dead end anyway. And they set off for this land, which in those days was not a very fertile land. And he would face more than one time of famine when there would be no food for him. And he had to go down to the breadbasket of Egypt to get something to eat. And that's how it all began with the old man, his son, and his grandson. And yet God linked his name with the names of those three men forever. And the God we praise tonight is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isn't that amazing? Well, they did go down to Egypt for food eventually, and uh, one of Jacob's sons was sold into slavery and thrown into prison and became prime minister. 
I mean, that, that, that is an impossible story. Down there in Egypt, though, Joseph was prime minister. It wasn't long before all the Jews were slaves. By that time, the descendants of the old man Abraham were in slavery. They had no time of their own. They worked seven days a week, nonstop, from sunrise to sunset. They had no money. They had no freedom. They had nothing. They were slaves. And yet they increased in number. And now came the first attempt at genocide of this people, when the Pharaoh commanded that every boy must be slaughtered, thrown to the crocodiles in the Nile. But the Nile saved one boy, Moshe, whom his mother was desperate to keep alive, and God's deliverer had been born. They should never have got out of Egypt. It's impossible. The Egyptians, from Suez down to the Red Sea, from Cairo, rather, down to Suez, had a line of forts to guard the eastern border of their country and to keep slaves in as well as enemies out. There was no way those hundreds of thousands of slaves could get out of Egypt. It was humanly impossible. And, of course, when they finally made a bid for freedom, they went totally the wrong direction. They went south until they were trapped between the sea and the Saharan desert. And behind them, the chariots of the biggest army in the then known world, trapped. They should never have escaped, but they did. And it was the Egyptian army with all its horses and chariots that didn't escape. They were then 40 years in desert without food or water. And in 1973, the Egyptian army, within three days, was dying in the Sinai Peninsula. And Israel took pity and released them. In a place where the Egyptian army of today could not survive three days, they survived 40 years. They should never have got into this land. They sent spies ahead to try and suss out the situation. The spies came back, a dozen of them, but ten of them said, we'll never get in there. We've seen their cities, and their city walls reach the sky, and inside are people who are far bigger than we are. They're a taller race. They're giants. We'll never get in. But two of them said, we're going in on God's shoulders, so we'll be bigger than them. And those were the only two who got in. They should never have been able to take this place. Jericho was the first city and an impossible city to take, but they took it. This is not an easy place to live by nature and by human nature as well. It's a very precarious country. It's a narrow corridor, as you know, between the Mediterranean and the desert. And on that side, the desert side, there is a long ridge of black basalt rock, which is so sharp and so hard that a camel cannot walk on it. And in this narrow corridor, which links Africa to Europe, to Europe and to Asia, it's just a little narrow strip of land. And of course, because of that, it's the corridor between the rest of the world. Everybody traveling from one continent to another has to come through here. But right down the eastern shore of the Mediterranean is a mountain range. And there's only one gap in it. 
And the gap is a 12-mile across plain called the Plain of Yezreel or the Plain of Esdraelon. And that's the only way through. Every army that has marched through this area has gone through that gap. It's the crossroads of the world. The road from Asia to Africa goes through that gap. And the road from Arabia to Europe goes through that gap. And the crossroads is at a little hill called Megiddo, or in Hebrew, Harmageddon. And uh, Alexander the Great came through there. Napoleon came through there. Because it's the gap, and it links all the then-known world. This was before America was discovered. The whole known world had to pass through here. And somebody has said, if you insist on living at a crossroads, you'll get run over. Which is why this land has been run over, invaded so many times. Little Israel was surrounded by hostile neighbors. On every side there were Moabites and Midianites and every other parasites you can imagine. And they were hostile neighbors and they invaded this territory regularly. They came to get animals and crops or they just came to set crops on fire. But it's a very hard place for them to live. And beyond the immediate hostile neighbors were two world superpowers. And the superpowers were based on big rivers because big rivers had a constant supply of water and therefore could bring fertility. And with the Nile on one side and the Tigris and Euphrates on the other, there were two world superpowers constantly threatening each other. And when they attacked each other, they had to come through here. So on the one hand was the Egyptian superpower, and on the other hand was the Assyrian superpower, and later the Babylonian superpower. And then this little nation had civil war, which usually wipes out a nation if it's pursued far enough. And they split into ten tribes in the north and two in the south at war with each other. And then after the civil war, the Assyrian superpower came and ten tribes disappeared. Only two left, Judah and little Benjamin. And they didn't last much longer and then the Babylonians came and they were gone too. They should never have survived. A few of them came back 70 years later, only a few, in comparison to the number who went. We tend to think they all came back from the exile. They did nothing of the kind. A few thousand came back and managed to begin to rebuild this city, though the temple they managed to erect was tiny compared with Solomon's. But they got it built and Nehemiah got the walls up again, still surrounded by hostile enemies and neighbors. And they never got their political freedom back. They were occupied by Syrians, then Egyptians, then Greeks, then Romans. And those who occupied them, some of them tried to obliterate Jewish identity and culture. One of the worst was a man called Antiochus Epiphanes, who came to this city for three and a half years, during which he did his best to impose Greek culture here. He built stadium for sports, and of course Greek sport was always in the nude, as I'm sure you know from old Greek pictures. And that was an affront to the Jewish decency. And he sacrificed pigs on the altar of the temple, 
and filled the vestries of the temple with prostitutes. He did his best. He was the worst. And he didn't try and kill the Jews. He tried to kill Jewish culture and identity. And he is a foretaste of the Antichrist, who will do the same thing in three and a half years right here. And then with the Romans, they crucified thousands of people, not one. You've only heard of one maybe, but there were thousands. And it was so painful an occupation that they finally decided to revolt and try and throw the Romans off. Jesus foresaw that happening. And he said, as he made his way to the cross, he said, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. What's coming on you? And he said a thing that I've never heard any preacher quote. As he carried the cross, he said, if they do these things when the wood is green, what will they do when it's dry? That's a carpenter talking. Green wood you don't cut, but dry wood you do. And as he sees the hammer and the nails being carried in front of him and carrying the wooden beam, the carpenter says that. And what he means is, I'm green wood, and yet they're cutting me down. But when you become ripe wood, dry wood, what will they do to you? And they did. And in AD 70, this city was destroyed, the temple pulled down stone by stone. And you can go and see the stones that were thrown down. Now, at the southeast corner of the Temple Mount, you see the huge blocks on the very street on which Jesus walked, and the blocks thrown down have cracked the street. Have you seen that? Well, it's all true. And Jerusalem was no more, and the Temple was no more. But they still lived on, and they tried a second time, and a false prophet gave a false Messiah to them, Bar Kokhba. And in 135 AD, they made a second and final attempt to throw off the Roman yoke, but they didn't succeed. They were wiped out. You've been to Masada, some of you, I'm sure. And this city had a perimeter put around it beyond which no Jew could come into the city. And it was renamed Aeolia Capitolina. And the land was renamed Palestinia. That word post-dates Jesus. And yet there are preachers in my country in England, prominent preachers. The leading evangelical Bible teacher of England is now telling my country that Jesus was a Palestinian. Doesn't he know his history? But that was the end. A few Jews managed to survive in places like Safed, a city set on a hill, but that was the end. They should never have reappeared. They should never have kept their identity, and many of them didn't. They were scattered over the whole world, and many of them assimilated and lost their identity. Others kept their identity by holding on to just three things, circumcision, the Sabbath, and a kosher diet. And that way they hung on to their identity, but they lost their language. They lost so many other things, but they kept alive a hope that one day they'd be back here next year in Jerusalem. And here they are, against every possible human explanation, considering that the Crusades, ostensibly coming here to release holy sites from the Muslim, killed every Jew on the way, starting in France and Germany. And the slaughter of Jews by the Christian Church is one of the blots on our reputation. And in Spain, the Inquisition forced Jews either to be tortured to death or to convert to Christianity under pressure. 
1492, the very year that Christopher Columbus discovers America, Spain gets rid of the last Jew. Interesting because the new world became a refuge for so many Jews. So it's gone on. And there have been so many attempts, Russian pogroms, the Jews of Poland were persecuted. And as you know, in our lifetime, my lifetime, it came to a head with the determined attempt to wipe the Jewish people from the face of the earth. And it succeeded with a third of them, six million, including one and a half million children. Well, you are probably familiar with all of this. I just want to underline, there is no possible human explanation for the fact that Israel is back on the map and back in their land after all that, that there is still an Israel, is quite incredible. And you cannot find a natural explanation for it. They can't find a natural explanation for it themselves. Because once a year they celebrate Passover, that their origin as a nation began with a miracle. It's not just a miracle that they've survived, it is a series of miracles all the way through. In other words, there is only a supernatural explanation for the survival of the Jewish people. And I remember in 1967, the Six Day War, I was riding in a jeep with uh, an Israeli major in the army on the Golan Heights. We had to watch where we walked. There was live ammunition everywhere on the ground. There were huge Russian gun emplacements with the guns pointing down from the top of the Golan Heights to the kibbutzim below. And yet when I asked the major, how did you get up here? He didn't say a word, he just pointed to the sky. He knew his history. <laughs> there is no way they could have ever survived these 3,000 years and more, 4,000 years, unless the God of Israel exists, and unless he intervened in their history again and again and again. That's why Heidegger said to Frederick, Your Majesty the Jews, that's the proof of the existence of God, but only of the existence of the God of Israel. It doesn't prove any other God. Actually, no other God exists. The others are all figments of human imagination. But the God of Israel exists. And that is why Israel exists. And I predict now that on the last day of history, Israel will still be there. Jesus promised it. He said, heaven and earth may pass away. But he said, this race will never pass away. And it hasn't. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. <laughs>